Wes, can you stand real quick? Just so I want everyone to see. This, this is Wes, if you don't know him. He runs a lot of things around here. One of the other things he runs is the Door Hanging Ministry. So I just want you to know who he is. And we're hoping maybe you could sign up if you're thinking about doing that. It's what date again? July? Last Saturday in July. Just by show of hands, how many of you came to Summit through a door hanger? All right. So it does have an impact. And there's some people missing here today that would also raise their hands. So we would just encourage you. It works. It does bring people out. And so we just want to have an impact on our community through the door hangers. Plus, they're really cool looking door hangers. We've got a new set and... Not because my picture's on them, but because the <laughs> my wife makes it look good. She's on there too. Also, men's meeting. We have a men's meeting. We meet every third Friday. So I just want to encourage you, if you have not come or you have come before but have not come recently, that you would set aside the third Friday of every month to come to the men's meeting. And here's why. The church will only be as strong as the men are in that church. And I'm not talking about physical strength, but I'm talking about spiritual strength. We will never grow beyond the strength of our men in this body. And so it is critical. The men have a huge impact in the home, in their workplace, in the community, and in the church. And that's not to say anything negative about the women. The women, for the most part, are the ones stepping up and filling the slack of the men. And that's how it has been. But men, we are called to lead. Lead in a way that is godly. And in order to do that, we facilitate that through this meeting on the third Friday. It's one way that we do that. So that we can gather together and begin to establish relationship and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and become saturated with His Word and become strong spiritually so that when we go back to our homes, we can lead as God wants us to lead. When we come back to the church, we can lead as God wants us to lead when we're in our workplaces, when we're in our community. Man, we need help. I don't know about you, but I need help. It's hard to be a man. And it is under attack in this world and in this culture. In every television show and movie, men are belittled, thought less of, and unfortunately... There are good reasons for that. So this is just my strong encouragement and endorsement of Guy's Night Out. Come. Make a, just make it a commitment right now. Come the third Friday. That's this Friday. Come and be a part of that night. Be there with us as we struggle and fight together to be the men that God wants us to be. Will you do that? Maybe. Okay. Amen. That was strong agreement over here. <laughs> and I'm thinking here, is there anything else I wanted to talk to you guys about? No. Well, it's good to be back with you. If you don't know because you weren't here last week, I wasn't here last week either. <laughs> and someone filled, a dear brother of mine, Jim Wine, filled in, Pastor Jim Wine. In fact, he'll be later this year moving in a direction to minister to the people of South America as he goes down there to work with a fellow who has been planting churches, and that's his goal. He wants to spend the remainder of his life planting churches so that people can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, be saved, be transformed. So we're just really, I hope you benefited from, from last week. I hope you got something out of that. But it's bad for a pastor to be gone, uh, to not speak every week. And the reason why is because then he builds up a lot of stuff. 
You know what I'm saying? He built, you know what I'm saying, Senia? And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. But I'm actually going to go light this time. We're only going to get through the first point, if you can believe that. Just the first point of today's message. Okay, I'm going to try to keep it short. Do my best. And then next week we're going to come back and do the second two points. So you don't want to miss. This is a two-parter. That means you have to come back next Sunday too. If you haven't opened your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 50. That's page 845 in those blue Bibles, if you're using one of the church Bibles. And the title of this message is Intolerance for Sin. Intolerance for Sin. How many of you know, just by show of hands, and it, it's okay if you don't know, I just, and many of you probably don't, but who Billy Sunday is? By show of hands. Couple? Two, three, four, five? How many of you know who Lady Gaga is? Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I know, that's not a fair question, but... It would have been cool if everyone knew who Billy Sunday was. Billy Sunday was early in the 19th, well, 20th century. This is when he became famous for what he did. He, be, he gave up his baseball career. And he was a, a good baseball player. Gave up all, all of that and what that meant. And he entered into the ministry. And became a very famous and well-known evangelist preacher. And drew crowds in the thousands. And he was very animated in his speaking and and focused on the gospel, focused on salvation. He's quoted as saying, and this is why I bring him up. Now remember, this is early 20th century, so 1900 to 1920. Okay, I think he died in 1930-something, I believe. This is his quote. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. And I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to hell. I wonder if that's our attitude if that's our attitude in the 21st century towards sin. Or maybe our attitude is like this, and this is another story I found. It, it goes like this. A flippant youth asked a preacher, you say that unsaved people carry a weight of sin. I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? Is it 10 pounds? 80 pounds? The preacher replied by asking the youth, If you laid a 400-pound weight on a corpse, would it feel the load? The youth replied, It would feel nothing because it's dead. And the preacher concluded, That spirit too is indeed dead, which feels no load of sin or is indifferent to its burden and flippant about its presence. And the youth was silenced. You know, the text we're going to look at today, when we read it, we'll get to it in a second, your reaction could be this. Wow, Jesus seems extremely harsh or stern or overreactive or unreasonable and even intolerant. 
And you would be right about the last one. He is intolerant when it comes to sin. He is intolerant. You know why? Because He is the Son of God. You know, we just sing about how great is our God. You know what one of the things that makes Him so great? He's so unlike us. He's so holy. Sinless. Perfect. Righteous. That is one of the things that causes us, inspires us to stand in awe of Him. God is the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. God is the sinless one. Jesus is the sinless one. And beloved, He died in order to free His people from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, and we've said this before, not just that horrible place called hell, but the power of sin in the believer's life. He died to free them from that control. We sing it this morning. He is stronger. Sin is broken. That means it no longer has power within and of itself to master us. Oh, we give it power. But it is broken through the cross. Listen to this passage in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Just listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us or teaching us or instructing us to renounce. Meaning, I want nothing to do with this. What is it we're to renounce? Ungodliness and worldly passions. Do you guys know what worldly passions are? I know you do because you know who Lady Gaga is. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, this life. Doing what? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, to redeem us, yes, from all lawlessness, yes. And you know what else? To purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Purify, beloved. Purify. You mix sin in there, is that pure? No. Psalm 5. Verse 4, just listen to the Word of God and I pray that it will penetrate your heart. The psalmist says here in verse 5, verse 4, For you are not a God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Oh, how contrary that is to our culture. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Can you believe that's in the Bible? It is. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors. He's disgusted with the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Deceitful there is a cheater or a fraud. He hates. He abhors. One more. Proverbs 6. You've probably heard this passage before. I think we even put it to song. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. 
That's strong language, beloved. Seven are an abomination to him. Filthy, vile, disgusting, and wicked. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. That means they're in a hurry. They're planning for it. Where do you want to go Friday night? Can't wait till Friday night. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. That means he causes dissension, disunity among the family of God. He hates it. God does not tolerate sin. The Lord Jesus Christ does not tolerate sin. You, that will become very evident and clear to you as we read through this passage. However, we tolerate and even embrace what God hates. We, and when I say we, I mean the culture, but sadly, the church, to different degrees for sure, have become desensitized to sin through the the constant and increased exposure to, and sadly, participation in what God calls evil, an abomination in what He hates. And as a result of our tolerance of sin, beloved, when the Bible does make such strong and emphatic statements about human sin, we, the modern day reader, are surprised, offended, floored, even appalled that God would talk that way about sin and sinners. Beloved, the way I see it is like this. We have basically just two options as Christians as followers of Christ, the righteous one. We can either wholeheartedly embrace what the Word of God says about sin, or we can disregard it, pretend it's not there, ignore it, or attempt to remove the sting. And there is a sting that comes. We can attempt to remove it by just reinterpreting what God says. You know, just take, take it out. Make it mean something else. It really can't mean that. Beloved, it really does mean that. It really does. So if you would, if you're already there, just, and if you're not, Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 50. Let's look at what Jesus says in this passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Whoa. Did Jesus just say all that? If you have one of those red marked Bibles, we know he did because all the words are in red, right? But if you don't, he did say all that. That is Jesus speaking. Man, Jesus doesn't play around. So this morning, we're going to consider three warnings from this text that we must heed. That means give serious attention to. Okay? So that means that when we hear it, we think about it, we meditate upon it, we think about it, we begin to let God's Spirit work in our heart as He applies that Word to our heart and mind and we let it flow out in a changed life. That's what it means to heed here. Give serious attention to in order that we as followers of Christ might overcome sin and truly live for Jesus Christ. That little thing is right in your outline inside of the left-hand side of your bulletin in case you're following along. And again, we're just going to look at the first point today. But let me give you a little context and just to kind of bring us up to speed. This is where we are in Mark right now. Jesus' public ministry was coming to an end. or Actually, his public ministry had ended. For the most part, the religious leadership of the nation has rejected him as their long-awaited Messiah. They say he does what he does by the power of Satan. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And they're trying to persuade others to stop following him also. He now is slowly making his way to Jerusalem where, lo and behold, he's going to be betrayed by one of his close followers, arrested, put on trial, and ultimately crucified by the demands of the crowd even though the man has done absolutely nothing wrong. He is sinless. He is innocent. That's where he's headed. So his time on earth now is drawing to a close. That's where we are in Mark. His focus is no longer the public crowds, but now he intensely, like a laser beam, focuses in on his twelve. His disciples, the ones who have remained by his side, the ones he had hand-selected and picked and chosen to be the men that would continue his ministry after he is murdered, resurrected, and ascends again to be with his Father. Now the twelve, we know, if we've been looking through and going through Mark, if you've been with us, they are far from perfect, right? They are far from perfect. And in fact, they have demonstrated that they're slow to understand Jesus completely and His rescue mission. Their actions prove that they're sinners by nature just like we are. One example of that would be the fact that we've just seen in recent texts that these guys are arrogantly arguing about which one of them among the twelve was the greatest. And we've also seen that Jesus' ways, thoughts, ideas, actions, are not the ways of sinful men. They are not the ways of sinful men. Let me just remind you of a few texts that we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. Just, just a few phrases. These are words of Jesus. 
If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, this is what you're going to need to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, and guess what? You will save it. If you want to be my disciples, Jesus says, you must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is so contrary to sinful man's nature. So contrary. So what we have here is Jesus is giving His men a crash course in the time that He has left in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means to be His disciple. Beloved, what it means to be a Christian. Or what it should mean. Jesus' lessons from today's text on discipleship are just as important. And this is what's amazing about God's Word. They are just as important for us as they were for His men 2,000 years ago. Still true. Still relevant. Still applicable to you and I. Living in the 21st century with Lady Gaga. So the first warning we must heed is this. It's a very simple one. It's in Mark 9.42. It's in your notes. Avoid causing others to sin. Simple, right? Avoid, as Christians, causing others to sin. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus says, listen, whoever, speaking to the twelve, whoever causes one of these little ones, their children in His presence, We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago because he uses the child as an example. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, so we need to talk about a few things. These little ones, these little ones who believe. Is Jesus just talking about children? Is that what he's talking about? Is he just saying, listen, you see this toddler or five-year-old or six-year-old, this six-year-old who believes in me, you better not cause him to sin. If they're 10 or 15 or 18, it's cool. I'm just worried about the little ones. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. It's, It's best understood, and I'll show you here from another text, it's best understood as Jesus' description when he says, little ones who believe, of simple and lowly and ordinary followers of Jesus Christ. That's just his way of saying simple and lowly and ordinary followers of Jesus Christ. Some have even thought maybe it's a reference to a new believer, but I think it includes all believers. All believers because, and we'll see in a second, all believers come to Christ as a child. As a child. We see that in Matthew's Gospel. Where the scene, same scene here that we have in Mark is recorded in Matthew. But as you look at the Gospels, they complement one another because they give different details about the same event. And so when we look at Matthew's Gospel, and just do this. Turn to the left in your Bibles. Turn back to the left. If you're in that blue Bible, it's page 823. If you're in your Bible, Matthew 18, chapter 18. And look at verse, uh, once you're there, verse 1. And we'll read through to verse 6. This is the same scene, but a couple of things are recorded and put together uh, in a different way so we can see something here that we don't see in Mark. Matthew 18, 
It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them, he put him in the midst of them, and said, these are Jesus' words, truly, most certainly, I say to you, unless you turn, repent, turn to Christ, and become like children. What does that mean? Does that mean they all need to shrink? No. No, it means they need to be totally dependent because that's what children are. And they need to be not great in status or high in rank. That's how they come to Christ. Remember, children were considered of least or the lowest level of rank and significance in the culture of Jesus. So he's saying, you guys, you're all crazy about who's the greatest. It doesn't work like that. You've got to be last. If you want to come to me, if you want to follow me, you've got to come as a child, as what the child represents. Nothing. You're not bringing anything. You're completely dependent on me. Just like this child. You're low. Just like this child. So, I say to you, unless you do that, unless you turn from your arrogance and your proud haughtiness, thinking you're something when you're nothing, and you come as this little child, then it says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says. Whoever humbles himself like this, like what? Like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, whoever receives this humble, lowly, simple follower of Christ in my name, they actually are receiving me, accepting me, welcoming me. That's why we talked about this a few weeks ago. That's why it's critical about how we treat one another in the body of Christ. Because how I treat you is actually how I am treating Christ Himself. Since you are, or if you are, His follower, His disciple, a believer. He says, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. But, contrast, here's the other side, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would just simply be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So in Mark, we're just, he records just being thrown into the sea. In Matthew, just in case you missed the point, and be drowned in the sea. There's no recovering from this situation. Okay, so that's the first thing. Those who believe, these little ones who believe, they're just believers. It's a, it's a reference to us as Christians. Lowly, simple. Second, the word that Jesus, or at least in the ESV you hear, you see here, Mark 9.42, look back at the text. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to sin. The word there is scandalizon. It's translated sin. It's in the Greek, that's what it is. It's translated sin here. It basically means to entrap, ensnare, Entice to fall away, cause to stumble. Those are some of its meanings. And it was commonly used to mean cause to sin or lead into sin. So the word was commonly used to mean cause to sin or lead into sin. That is why the translators of the English Standard Version, which is what we use here, which is what this Blue Bible is, which is what you see up on the screen, they've 
translated that word sin. But maybe you have a New King James Version or a New American Standard Bible and you'll see there the word stumble. Stumble. Because both, both are communicating the same thing. But just to make sure that you understand, I think sin here is the better translation. Stumble, you might even think, is this a physical stumbling or something? No, just to be clear, it means to sin. It means to sin. It's also translated fall away. Fall away. In Mark chapter 4, verse 17. Look back at your text here. Mark chapter 4, verse 17. Just flip to the left. Just want you to see that. And in this text, we were looking at the four soils. These are different soils. I'm not going to re-preach that passage. But here, Jesus says, you go out, you preach the Word. There's different responses based on the soil. And in this case... The soil has no, there's no root here in the soil. So the people hear the word, they endure for a while, but then tribulation and persecution comes because they take a stand for Christ. That's the context. So they say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Boom, some persecution comes because of that. And then they immediately fall away. Scandalizon, same word. They fall away, they stumble, they sin, they turn from God. The idea in this text that we're reading here this morning in Mark 9, 42, is is there's a somber warning here, a somber warning for us, for the disciples of Christ, of doing anything, beloved, anything that might harm or injure the faith of a fellow believer, of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Or let me say it another way. Cause them to turn or fall away from God by directly or indirectly causing them to sin or stumble. That's the warning. Now, Jesus doesn't say this is a a bad thing for someone to do. He doesn't just say, you know, you guys, you really shouldn't. Uh, It's not something you should, you know, cause others to sin. He elevates the seriousness of this by saying it would be better for that person if they drowned in the sea. I didn't say that. Just understand, I am just the messenger. Jesus said that. Better than what? What's better than that? I mean, how is that better than something else? Well, I think it's safe to conclude that drowning in the way that Jesus has described would be better than the severe punishment that that action actually deserves in Jesus' eyes. See, we read this. I'm going to tell you right now. We read this and we go, "Uh, really? Yeah. And the reason we go, really? Is it that serious, you know, if I lead my brother or sister into sin and it causes them to turn away from Christ or to fall away or to stop believing? Is it really that bad? Yeah! But we're so drenched in sin that we don't think anything of it. We don't think anything of it. We have a tolerance for sin not not only in our own lives, which we're going to talk about next week. Oh, you don't want to miss that. But in the lives of others, 
even leading them astray. Jesus says, no, there's no room for it. This, This is serious business. Sin is no joke. And Jesus is not amused, not even a little. When we as Christians carelessly or casually lead or entice another believer into sin, either indirectly by being a lousy and unholy example of what it means to follow Christ, huh? or directly by purposely drawing them into sin. By the way, just a note on this great millstone, just so you understand. It literally means the word, it's translated great because no one would really understand, but it literally means the millstone of a donkey. And the reason he, that word is used is because in ancient times they would grind grain. And you've maybe seen the little hand grains, it's a little bowl, and you have a rock and you would just rub it and grind it away. But these were more industrial <laughs> style, ancient grain. This was a huge stone. And there was a bowl underneath, and the stone could not be turned by a human. It was too heavy. It was huge. So a donkey, donkey power, would move this stone. So it became known as the stone of a donkey. That's what he's talking about. This gigantic stone. Okay, so here's the visual for you. Here's, Jesus just thinks of the, the worst case scenario. Imagine for us a very large boulder, the kind that could crush your car. Okay? Someone ties it around your neck and then takes you in a boat out to the middle of the sea and kicks you off the side. That's what Jesus is saying. It would be better for that to happen to you than for you to ever lead one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And what that communicates to me is Jesus is not playing. He's not playing. We play with sin. He's not playing with sin. Not even a little bit, beloved. He's serious and he wants his disciples in his church, his church, those who have been purchased through his death to be redeemed and purify so that they might be zealous, crazy on fire for good works. He intends them to be transformed. He intends for sin to leave their life, not occupy their life. By the way, this is fun. Maybe you remember this story in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You know what? I'm just going to turn you there. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 5. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Or you can turn to page 913. Many of you know this story, but it's just, it's just one of those things. We read it and we don't really meditate upon it, how serious it is, what kind of message it was sending to the church. Here we go. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, how many times have you heard somebody say, listen, 
It's okay to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt others. Have you guys heard that? Please, give me some head nods. Yes. So that's the definition of morality for the world. right? I don't know where they got it, but it works for them. So as long as you don't hurt somebody else, then you should be free to do whatever you want. Well, let's see if that works here in Acts chapter 5. Because what Ananias and Sapphira did really didn't hurt anybody else. But it sure hurt them. It sure hurt them. Look at this, Acts chapter 5. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Stop right there. Listen, I've heard some weird stuff with this passage. This was their property. And what the apostle saying is no one told you to sell it. It was yours to do as what you want. And when you sold it, the proceeds were still in your control. You didn't have to bring them all to the church. The problem here is not that they didn't bring it all. The problem is that they brought not all of it and said it was all of it. Look at us. We sold our property and we didn't keep even a dime. We gave it all to you, church. That was the problem. So what were they doing? They were being deceptive, lying, they could boast, people would think better of them, so on and so forth, right? But lying, hey, what's that? Huh? And really, who are they hurting? The church is still getting a chunk of the pie here, right? They're still getting some proceeds. So who's hurting the thing? Nobody. It's, ah, no one's at fault here. God just doesn't think like that. So he says in, back in verse 4, And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Just in case you're not sure, that means he died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I bet it did. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his poor wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I feel bad for her. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah. Now, I'm glad that God doesn't do this on a regular basis. Because the attendance would be... <laughs> it could be. I'm not saying I know anything. I know myself. It could really affect the attendance, couldn't it? Of many churches. 
That's all the dead bodies. That would be, and there's just nowhere, concrete everywhere. Where would we even bury them? Although we do have this nice section out here. Listen! And that would be good just as a memory. Don't come here lying to God. <laughs> but that is exactly, I believe that is exactly, remember, the church is just starting. You see, we get confused. The church is the bride of Christ. He purchased to redeem her and purify her. Beloved, that means to get the sin out. He conquered sin at the cross so that we can conquer sin now in our lives. That we can say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness through the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that He has given us for all those who have been born again. That's what He wants for the church. The church was just starting. So, I think God's sending a message. Just so you guys don't get off on the wrong foot. I am not playing. I am not playing. I am intolerant of sin, and I want you to be intolerant of sin too. And just so you know, here's two examples in the graveyard so that you don't forget. So, First Timothy 5.20 You don't have to turn there. Just listen. As for those who persist in sin. Now this is talking about elders, shepherds, pastors. And he's saying, listen, before this passage he says, you have to have two to three witnesses. You go to them. But listen to me. If they continue, if they won't listen to the church, if they won't listen to the witnesses, if they want to continue on in their sin, you rebuke them. Not privately, but this time in the presence of all. Who's the all? The church. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. The Nazbi adds, fearful of sinning. That's what's being implied. So that they too might be nervous, afraid of, recognizing the cost of sinning. Beloved, we, we are so far removed from, from that in so many ways. And part of it is the grace of God is free and beautiful and glorious and covers every sin, including the one that leads other people into sin. It covers that one too, beloved. There is forgiveness through the cross. But that in no way implies that it's okay then. It's alright to keep sinning, and in this case, and in this text, and lead other believers into sin. It is not okay. God is not cool with it. He is dead serious set against it. Now, there are multiple ways you and I can cause or lead other believers into sin. But let me just list a few, just to give you something to think about. If you don't know, your Christian brothers and sisters watch you. If you don't know that. It's just a reality. So we need to realize that our actions, good or bad, will have an impact on others. Others within this body. So if your profession is, I'm a believer of Christ, a Christian, uh, born again, whatever title you use, but the pattern of your life is sin. Then other Christians, especially 
especially new believers that are, are immature or maybe don't know any better, may think, this is what they may think, that sin is not that big of a deal and that being a Christian and continuing in sin are somehow compatible. They're not. According to Jesus, to be His disciple and to continue in sin, even leading others into sin, are not compatible. And just for your fun, go home and read 1 John. Write this down, because we're not going to do it now. Just read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-10. through 10. Read it a few times. Read it ten times. Read it until you can't read it anymore. And let the Word of God, not the words of Jeremy Bryan, work in your heart and your soul. It's not true, beloved. It's not true that sin in the life of the Christian is okay. It's not true. They're not compatible. That doesn't mean we don't sin. Please. But we are to be fighting sin. We are to be intolerant of sin. We are to be working it out of our lives through the strength of the Spirit and faith in the power of the cross. Not leading each other into sin, God forbid. Our children are watching. Our spouses are watching. Our friends are watching. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are watching. I'm going to give you a simple one just to show you how far down we've gone. Disobeying traffic laws. See, the second I say that, because I have this conviction, I'll tell you right now, here's one of my things. I never put on my seatbelt. And when I say never, I'm, I'm using hyperbole. I do put on my seatbelt, but it takes me a few minutes. I just have this habit of not putting on my seatbelt. According to the law in California, that is breaking the law. Okay? Right? But for us, we'll be like, what's the big deal? I mean, if you don't want to wear your seatbelt and you want to die like an idiot, let him do it! He's not hurting anybody. Right? But when you turn to Romans 13.1 and you see that God says to obey all the governing authorities that He has established because He has established them, then you're stuck. You're stuck. And if you're intolerant of sin, then you would even be intolerant of disobeying the traffic laws. See, this is not about how do you earn your way to heaven? You know, be a good little boy and girl, a good little driver, and if you wear your seatbelt and drive 65, God will be pleased with you and you get to go to heaven. That's not what this is about. We get to heaven only one way, through Christ's sacrifice, through His righteousness. But He has saved us to righteousness, to be transformed, to look like Him. And so in this life, through the strength of the Spirit, we are actively to pursue righteousness, not sin. It's hard, beloved, believe me. But it's possible through the strength of the Spirit, through the encouragement of one another, encouraging one another, as my wife does. She has a little tap, tap, tap. That means put on your seatbelt, stupid. Tap, 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 tap. Right? Sorry, baby, I forgot again. But I've been convicted just in these things. 
These are simple things, let alone the big things, beloved. The big things. But it's, it's sin to God. And that's how we start to define things. Ah, it's just traffic laws. Everybody breaks them. We're not everybody, beloved. We're the church of Christ. Are we? Second, we cause others to sin when we directly solicit. Now this is tragic to say. This is, we do this. We directly solicit or invite someone to sin. We, when we involve people in sin in any way, here's a real common one, gossip. See? I gossip to someone else. I encourage them to gossip back to me. Right? What would happen if the next time someone comes up to you and starts gossiping, you just said, Sister. Now, I'm not implying that only women do this, but just for my example. Because men gossip too. They gossip too. I'm going to tell you right now. Sister. My beloved sister. Let's not do that. Come on. Let's edify one another. Let's build one another up. Let's speak the gospel to one another. Let's encourage one another. Listen, I'm, no, I'm messed up too, just like you, but come on. See, that's what we're supposed to do. Not stand in judgment, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just gossip. Please, no, encourage, come alongside. But not get involved. Oh yeah, alright, yeah, I got some juicy stuff too. Wait, come over here, let me tell you a little bit more. Let's gather a couple more friends around, right? That's just a simple one. How about this? I'm going to get a little more serious now. Like with lust. So, the husband has a problem with lust. So, and I'm talking about a Christian. I'm talking about Christians now. Okay? So, he decides to bring his wife into it. So, he encourages her to watch inappropriate material. Now, beloved, I know Christians are doing this. I know they're doing this because of the amount of revenue this garbage generates. It's impossible. For that kind of revenue to be generated from a couple thousand people. It's millions of people. And so there's a good chance, statistically, that the church is wrapped up in this garbage too. Hey honey, let's watch the whatever channel together. I've even heard this encouraged through secular psychology. Oh, you guys having a little trouble in your marriage? Why don't you spice it up? You can get some material, go rent a video. So the husband goes, okay, and he does it. Now he's got his wife in this garbage watching that filth. Huh? That shouldn't be so. How about this one? I'm just trying to hit every single person if I can. How about this one? Because I've been hit all week. I don't, I've, I've been dealing with this. I want to share that joy with you. That's what I want to do right now. So here's this one. And I'm talking about Christians. Someone calls, right? Someone calls the house. Such and such on the phone. You tell him I'm not here. I'm sick. I'm in the shower. Now, what's your kid going to do? Or your wife or your husband? Oh, they're not here. You just told your kid to lie for you. You just lied and you had your kid lie for you. And we go, yeah, but Jeremy, come on. How am I going to get out of it? I don't know. Walk yourself to the door and go, I'm not talking to you. How about that one? You could do that one. You don't have to lie. 
Don't answer the door. Don't answer the phone. I don't know if you get out of it some other way. But cause, and see, we go, oh, it's no big deal. You know what? Ananias and Sapphira walked into church that day thinking, man, we're going to get some serious praise. They dropped down a load of cash. All they did was they held back a little. Come on, who can blame them? And they said, hey, here it is, it's all. Boom, they're dead. A few minutes later, they're buried out. Three hours later, his wife is buried out in the yard next to her husband. God's not playing, guys. Sin is so serious that he killed his son. Just let that meditate. By the way, we can, I'm over time, so I need to stop, but we can, just something else I wanted to say. We can, we can cause people to sin, lead people into sin, just by giving them bad advice, ungodly advice. Oh, girl, you should divorce him. Well, maybe, but I mean, is that, is that godly advice necessarily or, or advice or is that just worldly advice? Or you don't need to report that on your taxes. Nobody does. Nobody does that. No one will know. It's no big deal. Don't report that on your tax. By the way, that's sin. Here's another one. I just run, I've run into this one several times having bought cars. I don't know if you know this, but when you buy a used car and you take the title, right, you have to report how much the car you purchased the car for. And based on that amount, DMV charges you the appropriate registration fee. So I kid you not, I've had this happen multiple times. The seller will say, me being the buyer, I'll leave this blank, you fill it in. Fill it in? Put the price on there, what I paid for it. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. You know, but everybody does. It's no big deal. You can pay a lot lower registration fee. Guys, that's theft, that's stealing, that's lying, so on and so forth. But we are so washed in sin. Right? God's not playing. He's not playing. You come back next week. We're really going to have some fun. Because part of the problem is, is that we're so caught up in sin. How are we ever going to stop from leading others into sin? And that's the next thing Jesus is going to deal with. You got a problem? You cut it off. What? Talking about maiming my body, cutting my legs and hands and ripping my eyes out of my head? Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm crazy about sin. That's right. I am intolerant of sin. I want you to go to the utter extreme to rid sin out of your life. It has no place in the life of my disciple. All right. So here we are. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, page 958, if you're using one of those. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Today we celebrate communion, beloved. We do it the second Sunday of every month. This is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it communicates a couple of things, which we'll see here in the text. But I want to read through the whole passage all the way to verse 34. And then just make a few comments, and then we will pray and we'll partake of the elements together. Paul says here to the church in Corinth, who, by the way, was a church that was messed up. And they were in all kinds of stuff, and a lot of it wasn't good. 
So you have this one occasion where they're coming together, the text before this, and the rich are coming in and they're taking the communion meal, but they're devouring all the food and they're even getting drunk. Yes. And then the poor would come in and there'd be nothing for them. I mean, that that's like spitting on communion because what communion represents is I've been redeemed. The Lord has laid down His life for me that I might live for Him. And those who are in Christ are united as one. We are brothers and sisters. And, and through that, I love them as I love Christ. So everything they were doing was directly the opposite of that. So Paul has some words to say to them. For I received, verse 23, from the Lord what I also delivered to you, chapter 11. That the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in other words, not recognizing what they're actually doing when they're partaking of the bread in the cup. And they do it in a flippant way. They will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, it's not always the case. Not every person's sick. Not every person ill. Not every person who has died. It's because they've taken of the supper, the Lord's communion, in an irreverent way. But in some cases, that is exactly what has happened. Because God's not playing. He's not playing. He's not going to put up with sin in His people. And if need be, He will take them out. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, eat. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Beloved, this, uh, this communion meal, we take just this bread that no one likes. I know you don't like it, but that's not the point. I'm not here to have a meal. It represents something. It represents the body of Christ given for us. And when we take it, we're representing the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. And we take it together to represent the fact that we are together, united as one in that body of Christ. We take this little cup of grape juice to represent Christ's death, His blood given, sacrificed on our behalf that we might be forgiven of our sins and made righteous in Him through faith in that substitutionary sacrifice. That's what we celebrate. And then we're also reminded that He is coming again. And we've talked about that many times. That He did not remain in the grave, beloved, but He rose again. And not only that, ascended to His Father and left the promise that He is coming again. You see, all of those things are true. So when we come to this and then we just continue to treat others like garbage 
and continue to walk in sin and rebel. Beloved, we're doing this then in an irreverent way. We're not recognizing the, the validity of what this is. So, when the elements are passed, I ask that you wait until everyone has been served so we can partake together. But would you go to the Lord in prayer? Make confession to Him. Not to a priest, not to me. Make confession to Him. Ask Him to seek and search out your heart and reveal to you the areas where you are in sin. And then ask for the power through the Spirit to stop sinning and to walk in righteousness. And then you partake in a glorious way. Okay, beloved? Let me pray. Father God, we, um, we who have called Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, who have recognized that His sacrifice was for us, for our sin, that He stood in and took the wrath that we deserved. That He was punished on our behalf. We who have done that by grace through faith have been saved from the wrath to come. And we have the hope of heaven and the eternal kingdom before us. And beyond that, we have Your Spirit working in and through us to transform us. Father, I pray that through Your Word, Your Spirit would do just that today. That, Father, we would be convicted in those areas that we need conviction. That, Father, we would not be the same people year in and year out, but that Your grace would change us, would cause us to look and act and walk and think and talk more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, that sin would be rooted out of our lives. That we would see sin the way You see it. We would hate it. We would abhor it. We wouldn't cling to it. We wouldn't dabble and play in it. But that, Father, we would turn from it with all the power of the Spirit. Run! That we would be intolerant of it. And that we would dare not lead another brother or sister into sin. And yet, Father, I know that we have and we will to some degree. So, Father, I thank You for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin, that offers us complete and total forgiveness for all sin, past, present, and future. And I plead that before You today. My Father, help us. Help us to walk as You want us to walk. Help us to be transformed and conformed into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, the One whom we follow, the One whom we love, the One who has redeemed us with His very life. And that is what we celebrate today. Bless these elements, Father, and bless Your people that we might magnify Your great and awesome name and the name of our Savior in this world. Amen.